Good morning. I will invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16, and we're going to start at verse 28, and then we're going to read through 17, verse 13. And once you're there, I'll ask if you would please stand in reverence for God's perfect word. Starting at Matthew 16, 28 through 17, verse 13. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah does come first, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And you can be seated. Last week, Stu, who was here visiting from Covenant Reformed Church, one of our like-minded kind of sister churches, left off, and he left verse 28 because he respected that it was Communion Sunday, but that means he left it on my lap. And I soon realized as I got started this week, that is... Probably three, four, five, six, eight sermons in that verse. But alas, we will touch on it and leave most of it because this kind of theme gets addressed further into Jesus' preaching as well. But we do want to deal with it. Stu gave the picture about how suffering and victory are not necessarily opposed to one another. And he gave a great picture of the early 80s islanders, their dynasty. And how it was a bunch of guys that were playing through pain, playing through difficulty, and there was sheer exhaustion rather than just giddiness after winning the cup. And that did bring me back to grade one. Me and one of my classmates had no small disagreement at lunchtime about who was better, Gretzky or Bossy. And because he was lunch monitor, I remember that argument escalated to the point where I spent my recess inside. History has proven me right. Mike Bossy was the greatest. It was his back. More points per game than Gretzky, but I digress. <laughs> this is serious stuff. Regardless, the word picture was there to show us that the, the, the two themes of struggle and of victory are not opposed to one another. So these are not like opposite ends on a spectrum where we have to kind of choose some midway point that we're satisfied with, somewhere between suffering and conquest, between difficulty and dominion. Victory and struggle in God's economy, in God's world, they go together. In the story that God has authored, dominion and victory come through suffering and setback. And there's some other word pictures you might be able to think of to help us animate this in our minds. Think of air travel. 
A jet cannot get off the ground without resistance. It needs resistance in order for the lift to work. It needs it. If there's no resistance, if there's no pushback, this is impossible. And when we think about other biblical metaphors that explain how the kingdom works in history, we get analogies often from sports or from agriculture that Paul gives. And both the agricultural and the athletic parables or word pictures or metaphors show that winning and advance and harvest are in fact possible, but it comes through hard work, through perseverance, and through diligence. It is hard work. And we saw in chapter 16, both sermons from chapter 16, that these things do go together. Christ promises to build his church. He promises dominion. He promises the victory of his church in history. And then he goes on to explain the kind of suffering that is going to be necessary to get there. And we saw last week that Peter tries to avoid the suffering part. Peter just wants a cakewalk. He doesn't want this suffering business. And Christ rebukes him in the sharpest, most pointed way. Jesus says that it's impossible for this kingdom to happen without a cross. There is no king without a cross in the story that God tells. And there's an immediate application for us here as well. That desirable outcomes do take work. None of us should expect that our children will automatically be godly and uh, God-fearing people who walk in holiness just because there's stuff happening in our head. It takes work to communicate that to our children. It takes work to pray with our kids, to explain the Bible stories to them. It's going to take work if we want the desirable outcome. Likewise, nobody in this room should expect a fulfilling marriage if you happen to be the most interesting person in your marriage. Okay? If you're the most interesting one in your marriage, you are set up for hard work and for trouble. That will not work. Okay? Marriage is a lesson in dying to yourself and putting others first. The same works in the church. Don't expect to show up here and find a healthy church if you're not willing to do the work of being a healthy church member. Okay? It's not up to everybody else. It's up to you. It's going to take work if we want a healthy church. So we see victory does come through struggle. And it will take work. It will take setback. And there is frequently suffering involved in the story. Chapter 16 ended with the promise of repayment, which Stu pointed out correctly, I believe, that is not necessarily a bad thing. Repayment doesn't mean that God just repays with anger or judgment or wrath. Repayment can also be for obedience. Repayment can be for good works, for doing the work of putting sin to death, for the work that God's saints go through in suffering to see the Great Commission happen. There's repayment on the positive side as well. So for the believer who has been adopted into God's family, who has made peace with Christ, for whom all fear is gone, for that person, the struggle and the suffering for the kingdom will indeed be rewarded with eternal treasure. That's true. So repayment is also a good thing. And the fact that suffering and struggle are the pathway to victory, that they often pair together in the dominion mandate, keeps us out of two ditches. On the one ditch, You have this kind of triumphalistic kind of prosperity gospel, right? Cancer can't touch me because I'm not going to say that word, right? In our house, we don't talk about death. When we were in Florida, Costi Hinn talked about that. Growing up in the Hinn family, which was prosperity stuff. We don't talk about death. We don't talk about sickness in our family because that's a way of giving into it, okay? That kind of shallow triumphalism has no place in Christian thinking. But likewise, neither does the exact opposite of the poverty gospel. 
that says that the Christian life is nothing other than pilgrimage and exile in a weary land and we can expect nothing good to happen. It's just suffering and then you die. That is likewise not a biblical conception of history. And Christ ends the chapter on verse 28 on a note which does actually serve as a natural transition into what we're going to read. In verse 28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we might ask, what does this have to do with everything that Jesus had just previously said about building his church and suffering and so forth? How does this fit in there? And I think what Jesus is doing is giving a taste of the fact that the payback that God's suffering saints is going to receive, the glory that is theirs on the other side, is not only way out in the future, but they will get glimpses before their very eyes. The first century believers get to see and taste significant glimpses of glory as Christ pulls future glory into the present. The church is going to get reminders along the way that her efforts are not in vain and that perseverance is most certainly worth the cost. And it just so happens that because of the time, because of the era that we live in, and a lot of the uh, popular Christian media of the last 50 to 100 years or so, many of us have been conditioned to automatically think about end times or eschatology or the end of the world or the final, what we call the second coming of Christ, the final return of Christ. Whenever we hear language about the day of the Lord or Christ coming in his kingdom, we just automatically assume, oh, this must be about the end of the world. And almost always it's not. Sometimes it is, but frequently it's not. But if we have that mindset that any time you hear Christ coming in glory, Christ coming in his kingdom, or the day of the Lord, if your mind automatically goes to eschatology, you're going to have trouble with verses like this that clearly place this in the lifetime of the people that Jesus is talking to. And many critics of Christianity have picked up on this weakness in our armor. You have uh, people like the British skeptic Bertrand Russell and Christopher Hitchens, who this is their chestnut argument. Jesus was mistaken about the timing of his return. Jesus is not God, quit Christianity, is basically how the argument goes. And many Christians even, because of the environment in which they're in, even great Christians, like C.S. Lewis, who was living during the world wars, fell into this error. And it's especially surprising coming from him, because he was a man of medieval thought. But even he got into the assumptions that were popular in his time. And C.S. Lewis himself, and I still love C.S. Lewis, I'm not willing to give up on him because of this, but C.S. Lewis says verses like this are the most embarrassing verses in the Bible because they prove Jesus can be wrong. Ouch. Okay? Ouch. He's coming to these verses with a certain cultural expectation because of the way people were thinking in the time of the wars, and some of that has endured to today. But I think there's a better way than saying that Jesus was mistaken. The problem only exists if you already come to these texts with a certain conception about the end of the world, about timestamps, about the kingdom of God. If you come to the text with that, these will be difficult texts. If you don't, if we let the text define itself, all problems are resolved. There are many, many, many days of the Lord in the Bible. And a number of texts in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that speak of God or of Christ coming to earth in this day of the Lord or this coming kind of language that really have nothing to do with things that are future to us. Many days of the Lord happened in the Old Testament and they are in our distant past. They are not future to us. 
They're not speaking about the end of history. They're not speaking about the return of Christ. They're not speaking about what we commonly talk about his second coming uh, in terms of his bodily return at the end of history. Frequently, they're not talking about that. If we allow the Bible itself to define these things, these days of the Lord or these comings of Christ are not about the bodily return at the end of history, but about God intervening in dramatic fashion in human history. And sometimes he does this in judgment, and other times he does it in glory. And here Christ says that some of the twelve will not taste death until they see one of these comings happen. The Son of Man coming in his kingdom, that kind of language comes directly from Daniel chapter 7, which is in a picture of uh, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, ascending up to the Ancient of Days after his work on earth is done. He's completed his mission, and so this is an ascension picture of Christ going up to the Ancient of Days. And we've already seen some of these kind of time-stamped passages, like in Matthew 10, 23, uses the same message when Jesus sends the twelve out to go preaching. He says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The Son of Man is going to come before you twelve guys are done preaching in Israel. We have to do something with that. It's clearly not an eschatology text. In Matthew 24, this kind of language of the coming and the day of the Lord and Christ coming uh, in a fantastic way really heats up. And so we'll deal with much of this there. But at that point, Jesus is clearly referring to the Romans coming into Jerusalem, to destroying the city, to raising the temple. It's all wiped out. It's a catastrophic day of the Lord there. A catastrophic coming of Christ. Not in body, not in the second coming sense, but in judgment in human history. And so when we look at this text here in verse 28, it has been proposed variously that what Jesus means here about his coming in his kingdom could be a reference to the transfiguration, which is going to happen right away. That it could be a reference to his glory or uh, his resurrection. It can be referring to the glory of his ascension, which is the Daniel 7 reference. It could be an expression of the spread of the Gospels as the Apostles go out and start with the Great Commission, that that is uh, seeing the kingdom grow. And lastly, it could be a reference to exactly the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which would be at the end of that generation of Jesus' audience. These have all been proposed. But we know that the transfiguration is only six days in the future, so it would be a little odd if that's all Jesus had in mind. If I said to you guys, many of you will still be alive on Saturday... Yeah, that's true, but it would seem a little unnatural to talk that way, I think. Likewise, if Jesus is talking about his final coming, about his return at the end of history, then we do have a problem here because none of these men are alive for that event to happen. Jesus says, some of you won't taste death. So we know it can't refer to that either. And so I think this is a reference to actually looking at the grand scheme of all of these events as they usher in the kingdom of Christ in that first generation church. Uh, the Baptist theologian from the 1600s, John Gill, uh, who actually pastored the church that Charles Spurgeon took over about 200 years later, says this in his commentary. And this is the, the classical way of, of understanding this kind of apocalyptic language in the New Testament itself. This is John Gill on this passage. Till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, which is not to be understood if his personal coming in the kingdom in the last day, when he will judge the living and the dead. 
for it cannot be thought that any then present should still be alive at that time. But all the apostles tasted death long before, as they all have done already. For the story about John being alive and still living then is fabulous and grounded on a mistake which John himself has rectified at the close of his gospel. Nor of the glorious transfiguration of Christ, the account of which immediately follows, when he was seen by Peter, James, and John, persons now present, for that at most was but an emblem and a pledge of his future glory, rather of the appearance of his kingdom in greater glory and power, upon his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven, when the Spirit was poured down at Pentecost in an extraordinary manner, and the gospel was preached all over the world, was confirmed by signs and wonders and made effectual to the conversion and salvation of many souls, which many then present lived to see and were concerned in, though it seems chiefly to have regard to his coming to show his regal power and authority in the destruction of the Jews, when those his enemies that would not he reign over them were ordered to be brought and slain before him. And this, the Apostle John, for one, lived to be a witness of. So in modern English, what John Gill is saying is that Christ's kingdom has come, it is coming, and it will continue to come. And he sees this as kind of waves coming up, and as high tide comes in, the waves getting higher and higher. So, so first of all, they're going to see the transfiguration, then they're going to see the resurrection, then they're going to see the ascension, then they're, or, then they're going to have Pentecost, then we're going to see the gospel come, and then finally the last vestiges of the old covenant system, the temple itself, is going to be utterly demolished, at which point we are completely, fully, and finally into the new covenant era, is what John Gill is saying. And many commentators from that era, or from before our era, would take this view. So what is in view here is that. It's this number of events that culminate in the last final coming of what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, which is the destruction of Jerusalem. And these events are all highly significant because each one marks the coming up, Jesus doing greater and greater things in the New Covenant era as the old world passes away. And sometimes analogies help me to understand this and think, well, shouldn't it just be one decisive point in history? But we even know a lot of things in our own experience don't work that way. I often use the picture of a, a, a wedding. When a couple gets married, when are they married? When the engagement ring happens? When the wedding service starts, when the rings gets exchanged, when the vows happen, when the preacher says, I pronounce you man and wife, when he announces them for the first time, or later when they consummate their vows. At what point in there are they married? Fair question, right? It happens in stages, and that's frequently. When did World War II end? On D-Day? Yeah. Did it end when uh, Germany surrendered in spring of 1945? Sort of. Did it end when Japan surrendered in fall of 1945? Sort of. Did it end when a bunch of people redrew how Europe should look in the map? Well, sort of, right? So these, these things frequently happen in stages. And I think the Bible uses that kind of imagery as well. Some of the apostles were alive for all of these events, but by the time we get to the year 70, there's only one left, and that's John himself. And remember that little conflict with John and Peter in the end of John's gospel in John 21, where uh, someone misunderstands what Jesus says, and they think, well, John will live forever. And it says, no, it doesn't say John will live forever. It's just, what if he lives until the, this coming of the Son of Man? What's that to you? Okay? John doesn't live forever, but John is alive in the year 70. And so I think the reason that this marks a transition 
here to the Transfiguration is about to serve, the, the Transfiguration serves as kind of an early, the, one of the first installments of Christ showing his glory to these people as the world changes. These events are all significant reminders of God's work in advancing his purposes. And he knows and has promised difficulty and suffering for the apostles all along the way. The transfiguration, however, is going to be such a glorious moment that it is going to help the apostles keep pressing towards the goal despite the opposition and even torture and martyrdom that they are very shortly going to experience. And I think it's encouragement for us as well when we face suffering and we face setback in our own lives. They need to see a glimpse of this light to help persevere through the difficulty that's going to happen. And in fact, they do. Their perseverance, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, just leads to more courage begets courage, and more people find their courage, and, and Polycarp finds his courage, and then when he stands up, more people find their courage. And in 300 short years, the church has conquered the Roman Empire. Who could have seen that coming? The Roman Empire is gone, and the church is still here. The idolatry is gone. The pagan sacrifices are gone. And the emperor says, how do I rule like a Christian? Very significant changes because of endurance, because of perseverance, because, as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that moves us into verse 1 and 2 here. It says, after this, so after that exchange, after this gates of hell speech that involves triumph and suffering both, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And here again, we're faced with a time marker. After Peter has acknowledged Jesus as the Christ, our Lord promises the growth and dominion of the church advancing through history in his gates of hell speech. Then he foretells of his death and his resurrection. He sharply rebukes Peter for wanting a kingdom without a cross to the point of calling him Satan. Then he talks about preserving your life in exchange for nothing versus giving your life for something eternal, sacrificing for the gospel. And then he talks about repayment for how he is going to come in his kingdom power. That's a lot to digest. That's a lot to digest. Think if you're hearing this all for the first time. You've read your Bibles. You are familiar with these categories. Think if this is all new information and that just came at you like a fire hose. Now you've got to stop and say, okay, you guys need to, you need to marinate in this for a little bit. And so I think it's interesting that there's six days of just silence. You guys don't need anything more from me. You need six days to think about this because there are some very significant things that just happened here. And maybe you, Peter, maybe you don't even know what you just said, but you need to think about it now. So Jesus lets them marinate in this for six days. And then... Jesus is transfigured. And transfigured, we unfortunately know the word, or the prefix trans, in our day for different things. Trans just means across, right? The Trans Canada goes across Canada. A transnational organization is across different nations. To, trans just means to move from one to another, to go from one thing to the next. And then this has to do with his figure. He is transfigured. That means his figure, the way he's appearing to them, is changed. It's as though... His divinity has been veiled by his human nature. 
And now cracks start seeping through this veil and more and more glory is being shown. And Christ's divinity is shining through in a greater and greater way. And these guys are starting to see Jesus in a way that they have never seen him before. They're starting to get a direct glimpse of his divinity. He is still the same God, man. But the glory and the radiance and the beauty and the supremacy of his divinity are now displayed in a way that they have been entirely sealed up behind his human nature. And then in verse 3, it says, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Okay, we've heard this story so many times. Just think about this. What is going on? We get just this fire hose of truth in our face. Jesus goes dark for six days while we think about it. And now he's starting to light up. And all there's Moses and Elijah. What? Ugh. What is going on? And of all the incredible things that happened in Jesus' ministry, that I sometimes think, what would it have been like to be an eyewitness to this? This has to be the short list. <laughs> Moses and Elijah are here. What is happening? Six days ago, Peter had just acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah. And now there's been six days of downtime. The silence breaks by Jesus taking the inner three, so from among the twelve, the inner three, Peter, James, and John, up a high mountain, and then he puts his glory on display like this. And now Moses and Elijah are there. The saints, the three apostles and the two old saints, have been separated by centuries, and yet somehow they know one another. It doesn't say how they know it was Moses and Elijah, but clearly somehow this was communicated to them. And this is a representative of the group that Ephesians 2.20 says is the foundation of the church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and here they are holding court together at the feet of Jesus. And we might ask, well, not all the prophets and apostles were there. Why Moses and Elijah? Why those two as representatives for the group? Let's think about that for a minute. Moses, at this point, has been gone for 1,400 years. Okay? Think of how ancient history. Let's go back from here. 1,400 years. Go back to the year 600. Does that seem like a long time ago? Yeah, it does. If someone from the year 600 showed up, that would be interesting. So Moses comes from 1,400 years. And in his life, Moses had God appear to him in a burning bush that was not consumed. Moses was commissioned, and he confronted the mighty Pharaoh and prevailed over him. And then God takes Moses up onto a mountain and gives him the most holy law that this world has ever seen. That would, the nations would say, what kind of a God is this who gives such a perfect and wise and holy law to his people? And Moses comes down with it. By the end of his life, Moses dies in mysterious circumstances. God takes him up a mountain again. So these mountaintop experiences, I hope you're starting to see a pattern here. God takes him up a mountain, and in Deuteronomy 34, verse 5 and 6, it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses is directly, immediately buried by God. Weird. And then let's go to something more weird. In Jude 9, it speaks about the archangel Michael and Satan contending together about Moses' body. I don't know what that means, but it's weird. 
Moses is out of the picture for 1,400 years, and there's something about his body. And Elijah is gone for 900 years. Like Moses, Elijah is also a man of powerful confrontations. He is a prophet during the days of the wicked Ahab and his extremely wicked wife, Jezebel. You'll also remember Elijah for such things as his interfaith dialogue with 850 prophets of Baal, at which the end of that contest, at the end of that ecumenical dialogue, he had butchered them all. Differently than the way we do ecumenical dialogues today. But Elijah does this. And then he flees to Mount Horeb, which in the course of history is just another name for an ancient mountain. This is Mount Sinai with a new name. Mount Sinai gets renamed Mount Horeb in the days of Elijah. So Elijah flees to the exact same place that Moses received the law. And God appears to him there. Now, these two men are appearing before Peter, James, and John on yet another mountaintop. And we see that they have, they're going to get something that they've been longing for for centuries. In Exodus 33... Moses has come down from the mountain after receiving the holy law of God. And imagine you have almost seen God face to face in this glory cloud, and there is fire, and there is lightning, and there is thunder, and you are cut to the bone about the holiness of God. And you come down with this law, and what is your people doing? They're in idolatry. How angry he must have been to see the holy God, and these people are doing dancing, and they're worshiping their idol calf, pretending like they're worshiping God when they're not, because none of that worship is according to what God had commanded. And Moses is angry, and rightfully so, and he smashes the law. Then he tells his brother, go through the camp and start killing these people until an angel from God says stop. He was furious, and rightfully so. Everybody involved in that deserved to go down by the sword. And God, in his mercy, sends the angel and says, okay, now it's enough. You've killed enough of your kinsmen. Now stop. And they grind that idol up, and they are forced to drink it. And Moses goes back up, a discouraged man. How can he just get a glimpse of the holy God, and no one else gets it? No one else sees the value. No one else sees how precious this is. They're waist-deep in idolatry. And Moses is down. And he needs some encouragement. God, let me see you. Let me see you, God. And God finds a little notch in this mountain, and he puts Moses in there, and then he covers it with his hand, and he walks past so that Moses can only see God's backwards part, and the blindness and the glory is so radiating that Moses' face is lit up so that when the Israelites look at him, their eyes hurt from a reflected image of a blinded image of the glory of God. Moses gets a little glimpse to keep him going, to pull him out of his discouragement. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah has likewise been angered and provoked, and he's angry. And Jezebel, this evil, witchy woman, Like is common, when someone stands for righteousness in a wicked culture, guess who gets called the troubler of Israel? Guess who the troublemaker is? The righteous people get called the troublemakers. 
when all they're doing is calling people to repentance. And Elijah goes out discouraged, and he goes up to the same mountain where Moses went up. Now it's called Horeb, then it was called Sinai. And God calls him out of a cave. And you remember that story. What happens? This mighty wind starts blowing, and rocks are shattering, and these mountains start to split apart, and these rocks are coming, and what is going on? And then there's an earthquake. My goodness. The whole earth is shaking. And then Elijah covers his face, and God speaks to him in the wind. Both of these men got a veiled image of God in the depth of their discouragement. So here we have two men, each one called by God, both with the courage and the spine and the confidence in the word of God to confront the most powerful men in their world. One received the law directly from God and the other preached the purity and the force and the weight and the fire of that law. Both of these men come down from the exact same mountain, are provoked to intense anger, and then both get a glimpse of God, but are forced to cover their faces. And now, hundreds of years after their ministries have wrapped up, they get to see something that they did not get to see in their ministries. They get to see God with unveiled face. They're standing here before Christ as representatives of the law. That's Moses. He's representing the law and the prophets. That's Elijah representing the prophets. And this is a suitable summary of Christ's ministry. In Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so the same pattern of giving these old prophets a glimpse into the glory of God in their time of discouragement or impending discouragement is repeated here for the apostles. It's the same pattern. Guys are going to come down from the mountain, and it's going to be tough. But you know what? Out of mercy, I will give you a glimpse of who I am to keep you guys pushing through. And how often isn't that the case for us today? Maybe not in these redemptive historical moments. But how often, when you've been reading or you've been praying or you've been thinking about something and God just shows up and it feels like the pieces start to come together and you're just going to make this major breakthrough and then your world falls apart. Sometimes God shows up in quite a different way. I remember one episode in my own life went through a short-lived but serious bout of depression 2.0. And just as I'm pulling out of it, someone very close to me in my life needed me almost 24-7. And I was just coming out of that myself. That's how God showed up for me. I'm going to hurt you really deeply, Matt, so that I can use you for this next guy. But these guys don't get hurt. These guys get a picture of glory as they are about to enter into their season of suffering. In verse 4, it says, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter is so intrigued by what he's seeing with his eyes that he makes it want to last longer. Most of the commentators I read said, yeah, classic Peter moment. He doesn't know what to say, so he just says the first thing that comes out of his mouth. (laughs) You know, he gets up from a nap and he's disoriented. Uh, Tents? Right? 
maybe, it would be like Peter to say, ready, fire, aim. That does seem to be Peter's approach to life. But he does offer to make a tent or a booth for all three of them. And by offering to make three booths, Peter may be suggesting that these men are on an equal footing. And if that is the case, if that's the case, he is about to be corrected very seriously. Verse 5 through 8 says, And he was speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The Father interrupts Peter's tent-making proposal and makes it clear that these men are not on equal footing. God sends a cloud which very quickly overshadows both Moses and Elijah so that all you are left seeing is Jesus Christ. Even Moses and Elijah must fade back into the background when the greater Moses and the greater Elijah shows up. These men are not on equal footing. They painted the picture. They gave the promise. And here the substance is here. And these men gladly step out of the picture and God covers them up. Those guys, Moses isn't about Moses. Moses is about Christ. Elijah's not about Elijah. Elijah's about Christ. And you guys need to start seeing it. These great saints of old are disappearing from the picture. The successor is greater than the forerunner. And God announces his blessing on the son. And this is similar to what we saw in Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3. And it's the father repeating his own words from Psalm 2, which Tim read this morning. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Kings and rulers and empires must obey King Jesus or he will smash them into pieces. And this is how the Christian church outlasted the Roman Empire in short order. And how the church has shown itself to be far more versatile than any earthly kingdom or empire this world has ever known. Many wars have been fought. Many kings and empires have come and gone. Many have been raised up by the grace of God and then cut back down for their disobedience. The map has been redrawn how many times since this time? And yet here the church is, remaining still. Hilaire Belloc, commenting on this, says that the church is a perpetually defeated thing, and yet she always outlives her conquerors. Okay? She always outlives her conquerors. There is no Roman Empire today. There is no Pharaoh today, but the church is here. And by giving this vision of his son, by having the law and the prophets show up to bow down to Jesus as the final word, and then showing and saying clearly that this is the son that David anticipated, God is showing the absolute supremacy and greatness and majesty and sovereignty and glory of Jesus Christ. All these rivers of redemptive history had flowed into this ocean in this moment. This is him. He's here. These rivers have converged into the sun. And the apostles get to see this. And what looked scary to Peter just six days ago that Jesus must be crucified, that he must go into Jerusalem and be killed, now starts to look quite different. Because now that these guys are starting to learn how this story is going to work, they're starting to see that Jesus is not walking into Jerusalem as a weak, 
servile beggar. Jesus walks into Jerusalem as a conquering king, administering his holy law. He walks in as an anointed prophet who is going to preach repentance to the great and the small alike. He is walking into Jerusalem as a great high priest, leading his people from the front, walking right into the belly of that beast, into the belly of that city, into the heat of the battle, in order to do what he must do to take his throne at the right hand of the Father. And the blinding radiance and the white-hot power of what is happening is not lost on the disciples because they fall to their faces. They see that this is a glorious moment and they must bend in fear and terror. And yet, and I love how these providential conversations happen. We discussed this in Sunday school. The Son is only a terror to those who oppose Him. The only knees that He shatters with His rod of iron are those that don't bend willingly to Him. He is also the kind of prophet that Isaiah saw, one who doesn't just afflict the comfortable, but who also comforts the afflicted. Jesus is kind and gentle and lowly to those who see him for who he is. He will not break the bruised reed. He will not put out the smoldering wick. Jesus is tender to those who bend the knee, to those who show reverence, to those who kiss the sun. He's not a terror. And I sometimes wonder, in our age of comfort, we've had it better than anyone who's ever lived, and we are riddled with anxiety. That only makes sense for a people who have divorced themselves from God. Anxiety makes sense because we are guilty people, and deep down we know we're guilty people. And whatever comfort our life has, if we know that we are on the wrong side of Jesus Christ, as every unbeliever is, anxiety makes sense. Because the world is going to go from chaos to greater chaos to outer darkness. Anxiety makes sense for a soft, cultured people as we are if you do not kiss the sun. The anxiety academic in our culture makes absolute sense to me. In talking with one Christian counselor this last week, he suggested that maybe the reason the church counselor's appointment lists are so heavy is because the preaching is so light. Maybe that's it. Maybe people are never confronted with the fact that they must kiss the sun. You must bend your knee willingly or he will crush your knees with a rod of iron. He will do this. You kiss the sun or you are right to live in anxiety. And I say that as one who has suffered anxiety. It's not always that or only that. But the human soul needs to be dealt with in those moments. These men see the Lord for who he is and they do respond appropriately because they have kissed the Son. Jesus is tender. Jesus is lowly. He walks up to them and he touches them. He says, get up. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. You have kissed the Son. Get up. Come with me. We'll do this. We'll do this together. Verse 9 goes on. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So this mountaintop experience can't last forever. Peter's not able to drag it out. Eventually, they must come back down. 
But because it is not yet time to walk into Jerusalem, Jesus gives instructions yet again to stay quiet. And there were still some who expected a top-down political kingdom to come. And they had no category of thinking for understanding the nature of the way in which Jesus is ushering in and building his kingdom. The disciples are still in need of sharpening their thinking a little bit further. They were correct. Malachi 4, 4 through 6 does in fact prophesy that Elijah must come before the Messiah. They were right. In other words, they were able to read a sentence. What they were not able to do quite yet was read a story. And that's what Jesus is helping them to see. They're staring at the window instead of looking through it. They're reading sentences, but they're not making sense of the story. And we see in instances like this and so many others that prophetic and apocalyptic literature is rich with symbols and metaphors. So when you read about Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones, you're not learning about the skeleton in human anatomy. You're learning about how God breathes life out of death. When we read about living water coming out from underneath Ezekiel's temple, we're not learning about a building that has serious plumbing problems. We're learning about the Christian church and the the spirit, the, the gospel going out to the nations from the Christian church. When you read about mountains dissolving and being split apart in Malachi and in Zechariah, and you see decreation language like sun, moon, and stars falling out of the sky in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Zephaniah, we're not learning about geography and astronomy. Nor we are to think that those things must still be future because NASA hasn't observed it with the telescope yet. We're learning about decreation and recreation. You read those old prophets, the sun, moon, and stars have fallen out of the sky many times, and it's not something you saw with the telescope. It's God taking out Egypt's lights. It's God destroying mighty Babylon. It's God crushing his enemies. This is a statement of cosmic authority. I will put your lights out. That's what's happening. God's enemies are being subdued. We're reading about the birth pangs as the old covenant world is giving birth to Christ and to his kingdom, the world of the new covenant. And we must let the prophetic language supply its own meaning. We're reading about lights going out, about cosmic governance. We're learning about Christ taking his throne. And so when we read about the Elijah that Malachi sees, who is Malachi seeing? He calls him Elijah, but he's clearly meaning John the Baptist. And so we must understand the rhythm and the patterns of taking prophetic language literally which literally means understanding the genre that we're reading and the intention of the author. And Matthew Henry, commenting on exactly this verse about Elijah being John the Baptist, says, God's promises are often fulfilled, and men perceive it not, but inquire still, where is the promise when it has already been performed? The scribes busied themselves in criticizing upon the Scripture, but understood not by the signs of the times that Scripture had been fulfilled. It's easier to explain the word of God than to apply it and make right use of it. And so what Matthew Henry is saying here is that Jesus is teaching his disciples not just to stare at sentences. Don't just look at the window, look through it. Read the story, not just the sentences. Let scripture supply its own definitions. Let scripture interpret scripture. Don't stare at the words, consider what the author meant in those words. And in this case, we soon start to understand that Malachi meant... John the Baptist, when he uses the language of Elijah. Because these men both come preaching repentance, 
And John the Baptist, as the greater Elijah, did restore all things. He set the stage to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons to the fathers. To set the stage for Christ to take it from here. And so I think there's several layers of application or summary we can make. B.B. Warfield, in his book called The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible, compares the Old Testament to a dimly lit study. Everything is already there in its proper place, but it's difficult to see it properly. The truths of God are all present, but they're not yet fully illuminated or understood. But with the coming of Christ and the giving of the New Testament, the blinds are opened, the lamps are put on, and now you can see it better. Nothing's changed, and yet everything has changed. And in his ministry, Jesus has gone out of his way to show us that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so any view that we might take to our own Bibles that puts the Old Testament somehow on a lower tier of authority than the New Testament is severely misguided and will lead to errors. The Old Testament is not something that used to be the Word of God. It's the Word of God right now. It's pointing to Christ this morning. Still, the living, breathing Word of God. It continues to be a lens to understand history. And all of it points to Christ to his final ministry as we've seen in this text. Christ is now the focal point. He's the light by which we read those Old Testament stories with a much fuller understanding because he's shown us what this was all pointing to. And one way you can think of this too, this ushering in language. Think of a, you know, if you've ever grown corn in your garden. Well, you see the continuity and the discontinuity. First that little seed opens up and then a little shoot comes out. Next thing it's above the ground and it keeps getting bigger, and eventually the husk of the old corn falls off. And I think that's how we see this layered coming of the kingdom. Yes, it's transfiguration. Yes, it's resurrection. Yes, it's ascension. Yes, it's Pentecost. Yes, it's the spread of the gospel. And then finally that seed falls off, and there's no more temple. And this new corn plant is up and going on its own. Jesus is showing us what these things mean. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, have been the forerunners for hundreds of years to point the way forward, to show us the true and better law, the true and better prophet on his own mountain. Christ has come in splendor, majesty, and in the highest honor possible. And his holiness is so bright and so pure and so direct that even Moses and Elijah must once again slip back into the darkness. It's too much. It's too good. It's too pure. It's too glorious. And yet this holiness is a great terror for those who will not bend the knee to King Jesus. And it's a great comfort for those who gladly bow to King Jesus because this glorious God is fighting for you. The Scottish preacher Robert Murray Machane said, if you could hear the king of the universe in the room next to you praying for your soul, would you have any worries? And yet he is. He is interceding for you. This world is not a scary place. He is interceding for you. He gets down and he touches these guys and he's tender because they have submitted to his kingship, to his lordship. They see that that old world is passing away and this new world is coming up and Christ promises to be with them. And so this morning for us, have you bent the knee willingly to King Jesus? Have you submitted every area of your life to his? Because if there's some part of your life that you want to be a holdout, he is not Lord of your life. Christ must be Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You must bring everything to the feet of King Jesus. There is nothing you are allowed to keep back for yourself. 
And yet if we have done that, then we also know he will bend down. He will touch you. He will be tender. He is for you. He will never break the broken reed. He will never snuff out the smoldering wick. And so if you have seen Jesus for who he is, in all his holy terror and all his splendor, then take comfort this morning in the fact that he is telling you as well, rise and have no fear. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the riches of Old and New Testament, promise and fulfillment, types and antitypes, shadows and substance. Lord, thank you. And I pray that you would give all of us eyes to read the Bible for all it's worth, to see the stories you're telling. And not just to stare at the words, but to see the drama. To see what you mean in those words and the story you're telling and the way it all points us to your son. And Lord, I pray that each one here would gladly bend the knee to your son this morning. Lord, that we would kiss the knee, that we know he is our older brother. He is our husband. He's our supreme protector and provider, and he will make sure that we make it all the way home to you when you come back bodily at the end. Lord, I pray that we can all have that comfort. And if there are those here this morning that are right to be anxious, whose anxiety makes sense because they have not yet yielded to you, then, Lord, I pray that you would break their knees now rather than later that they would see you, that they would find the comfort and the sweetness that comes from your tender touch, from your provision, from your care for the church, that you are there with us. You have gone on ahead of us. You are not leading from the rear, but you have shown us the way. Thank you, Lord. And I pray that each one would know that peace. And amen. Please stand.
Peter, James, and John received the honor of being eyewitnesses to one of the most glorious events in human history. Together with Moses and Elijah, they have the profound and long-anticipated blessing of seeing God the Son as He truly is, with unveiled faces in all His refulgent glory. Toward the end of his life, Peter looks back on this day and tells us that what we have now is even better than that eyewitness experience that he got. Think of that. Your Bible is better, according to Peter, than what he saw that day. The dissonance and the tension and the waiting of the ancients has found its resolution in Jesus Christ. He uses this mountaintop transfiguration experience to show how he is progressively ushering his eternal kingdom into our physical world. The early church father Augustine said that the Bible, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. And today we sing in agreement with him, amen, amen, from beginning to end. Christ the story, his the glory. Hallelujah. Amen. Christ shines the light of meaning onto all history. He alone is holy. There is none beside him. He is perfect in power, in love, and in purity. Kiss the Son. He is the final word. And I'll leave you with the benediction from Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And go in peace.